Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. But first, we start with BC Teachers. The BC Teachers Federation, they've just signed a tentative new contract with the government. And teachers set to get a raise here. But many teachers, though, saying money is one thing. They're also worried about working conditions in the classroom, including concerns about personal safety, violence in the classroom. Check out this statistics now. Since the start of this school year, 58 complaints of workplace violence to WorkSafe BC in Surrey since the start of this school year. Teachers Association, very worried about that. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jatinder Burr. Jatinder is the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Jatinder, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, you bet. I, I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about this violence in the classrooms. Wow, 58, com- that's just in this school year? Since the, since the fall? September. Wow. That's in, that's in one month? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Tell, what's going on? Well, I mean, there's a variety of reasons of why kids may be acting out. But for us, and the, the release that we put out was that we wanted to have specialist teachers replaced on the first day of any absence, regardless of the kind of leave, whether they're sick or they were taking a personal. Uh, because when these specialists are not replaced, you know, um, this is where we were receiving distress calls uh, from our members on, on how impossible the workload has become. Um, and so in Surrey, I'm not sure if you know, Mike, but our, our schools are already at full capacity, over capacity. I believe the enrollment projected was supposed to be 900. We have received well over 2,200 kids, and there are no spaces. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of things that are happening in Surrey, uh, but one of them is that our specialists are not being replaced. Okay, so when you say specialists, do you mean like teachers who work with special needs kids? Yeah, so we have um, we have a variety of um, uh, specialists that work with students with uh, different kinds of needs. Um, so, for example, augmentative communication, resource counselors, uh, behavior specialists, literacy teachers, numeracy teachers. We have integration support teachers. Uh, LST, learning support teachers, school counselors, psychologists, social emotional learning teachers, I mean, speech and language pathologists, teachers of the deaf and hard of hearing, teachers that work with visually impaired. So we have a whole lot of teachers on a list that when they are absent and they are not being replaced, that's loss of service to our students. And when those students don't get the supports that they need, it has a ripple effect for the entire school um, community. Wow, okay, that's very interesting. So when we talk about these particular special needs kids, a lot of these kids have got very complex needs. Uh, you talked about some of behavioral behavioral issues and teachers who specialize in that. Is So is it these kids who are these particular kids were acting out and like hitting teachers? Like what exactly is going on? Like what kind of violence is happening? Right. So violence, I mean, there's different, 
there's different kinds of needs. When we refer to violence, we are referring to, um, you know, it could be kicks, bites, it could be throwing objects, it could be womb evacuations. And, but it really um, is dependent on what the child is needing. And that could be like, there's a variation of reasons. It could be that a child is um, hungry, they're tired, they're stressed, they want attention. Perhaps their uh, learning needs are not being met. A lot of times um, these incidents are happening when kids just can't self-regulate. They've just had too much. And so when you don't have the resources to support those kinds of children, um, then that's when we start to have these sort of acts of violence against, you know, uh, education assistants and teachers. My understanding is that for education assistants, the number is even higher than what teachers have reported for um, following our work safe regulations. Like we, they filed 58 in September. Education assistance number is much higher than that, apparently. Oh, okay. So the the 58 number may be underreported here. That may be even bigger than that. Yeah, the 58 that we reported was teachers only. Wow, okay. So when you talk about, okay, some of those problems you just described, like biting, kicking, throwing stuff, and I think you said room evacuation. So what what would be the circumstances that trigger a, a room evacuation? So, I mean, like I said, our, our kids that come to our schools, uh, they have their, you know, they have different complex needs. And yeah. uh, a room evacuation could be because, let's say a child has just, they are unable to sort of self-calm themselves. Self, uh, their sensory needs are not met. And so sometimes what will happen is that they've just been so uh, dysregulated that then they start to like throw desks and they start to tip uh-huh. um, like pencil uh, equipment in bins and that kind of stuff. And so that could possibly lead to, okay, in order to keep all kids safe, then we would evacuate all the kids and ensure that, that one child that's having the regulation uh, needs uh, is in a safe space without hurting others around them. Because we also need to make sure that we're being mindful of the rest of the students that are in that class. And my understanding from what teachers have shared with me is that our teachers, our other students, are actually being impacted by vicarious trauma. And we also have a lot of um, students that come to us from uh, immigrant uh, countries where there's conflict. And so some of these kids are also reacting and, you know, they're going into curling fetal positions because they're afraid. Uh, Some have never sort of seen these kinds of outbursts. And so it does have an effect on the other kids in the class. Speaking to Jatinder Burr, president of the Surrey Teachers Association. So you describe like how this sort of becomes a problem, gets out of control when you do not have these specialist teachers in place. And so it sounds like this happens what, when a specialist teacher calls in sick. It could, it can be, it can be. Yeah. What happens is this, it gets offloaded on the classroom teacher. So, for example, we heard from a kindergarten teacher that said, hey, Jatinder, when I'm working in my room and the specialist is away, now I have to ensure that I'm keeping, like, this child right close to me. Okay, so yeah. you're keeping this child right close to you, but something happens in the other side of the room, and this child no longer has the kind of attention and support that they require And so then you have a bit of a meltdown and it could be, like I said, for a variety of reasons. And that's 
And, and that's not even including the complex kids' needs in the entire classroom, maybe. Uh, and that doesn't always refer to kids with special needs. We have children that can't regulate their social-emotional behaviors, right? So um, lots of kids uh, in a very close, you know, uh, overpopulated district uh, with lack of resources, um, definitely issues with recruitment. Uh, wow. Hence, we can't get teachers. There's a shortage of teachers, right? So um, it is a problem. Uh, we are seeking that at least uh, for these specialists that they need to be replaced on day one. So, like For example, Mike, I want to point out um, on the list of the, the teachers, the specialists that are not being replaced, um, they're called integration support teachers. And they are not replaced um, until at least the, the third day, like three days mm. without a specialist that oversees those kinds of programs and supports for those kids. That's a problem. And, and why are why are they not being replaced? Like there's simply no one there to replace them. They've got a shortage. So I mean, yeah, we've definitely got a shortage, but I think yeah. the school district can do better, and they should do better. There's no reason you cannot dispatch a teacher on call to go fill that position for the day to ensure that at least their supports are available. Right. And the teachers in the BCTF has just uh, recommended a, a new contract to the members and includes a includes a, a pay raise in there. Does this new contract address these issues you're you're outlining here? Unfortunately, no. It, the contract mm. definitely has um, lots of really great things uh, for sure. But it doesn't go, it doesn't touch our work, our workload and our working conditions. As a matter of fact, my understanding is that um, BCPC said that if we were going to engage in conversations around uh, workload, that we would have to start from scratch. So let's rip up our contract and start from scratch for class size composition when we know that teachers fought in courts for years and years and years to restore our class size composition. And we are in today, 2022, and we still have issues with that non-compliance of class size composition in packed classes. And so, no, it's not good enough. And our work conditions have not been addressed. And it is taking a toll on our teachers. Okay. If you if you therefore think the, the contract is not adequate, Will you be voting against it? Would, would you be encouraging your members to vote no on it? So um, in our association, what we want to do is ensure that our membership is well-informed. And then, you know what, Mike, it's up to the membership to decide whether this contract works for them or not. Well, how are, so you, going to, as- how are you going to vote on it? <laughs> um, honestly, I'm going to vote. Well, you know what? I really, I think that I'm going to leave that because I don't want to influence anyone. Um, mm. And so I, I will go in and do my piece. But for me to put it out there as the president of the association, I don't think would be reflective. Of so, it sounds like, Jatinder, it sounds like you're going to vote no, if I'm reading between the lines correctly here. I would say that um, what my vote is, um, I, I definitely am not going to publicize okay. it. But I, what I will tell you is that it does not go far enough for working conditions. And so, okay. yeah. Okay, Jatinder, thank you for coming on today. It's great to have you on here. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, 
Let's talk about that fireworks fight that happened on Halloween at South Delta Secondary School. The video that was put out by the Delta Police Department is unreal. It looked like a war zone, literally like a war zone. You got 400 kids out there, a lot of them shooting fireworks at each other. These big Roman candles going off. Very, very dangerous. You had fireworks hitting police officers, fireworks hitting kids. One girl was uh, injured. Got Kyla Lee standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. It looks like a war zone. 400 young people lighting off fireworks in Tuas and aiming explosives at each other. Seeing chaos. You're seeing people intentionally trying to injure other people. Two Delta police officers suffered minor injuries. Seven youth also hurt. The most serious, a young woman. A young lady had been hit with a firework. Uh, it stuck or stayed with her, her jacket for a little bit, set the jacket on fire and caused some pretty significant burns to her. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Kyla Lee. Kyla's a lawyer at Ackerman Law, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Kyla, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Kyla, this is a wild story. When I look at this video, I'm like, what's going on with our ute? What's going on here? What's with the utes today? What, do you, what did you think of that when you saw that? I mean, I was shocked. When I was uh, in school, they used to play us a video about fireworks safety every year that would discourage things like this. And, and I don't understand why anybody would think, in, including a large group of kids, that it's a good idea to shoot fireworks at each other. Yeah, it's, it was out of control. And I mean, kids will do dumb things. I did dumb th- stuff when I was a kid. But yeah, that was kind of one of the biggest sort of fireworks firefights that I've certainly seen in Metro Vancouver. We've had a lot of crazy stuff with fireworks. But I mean, a case like police are investigating here. You think that's a tough case to solve? I think it is a tough case to solve, especially yeah. given the large number of people that were there and the fact that crowds like this tend to disperse. People don't always uh, rat each other out. Um, although, you know, if they do spend time and investigate um, and put some pressure on people, particularly with the threat of potential lawsuits, the threat of uh, probably school-based <laughs> consequences, um, they may be able to get some people to talk to identify some of the perpetrators. Right. I had a police officer say to me this week that, one of the difficulties in enforcing these fireworks bans that we see, we have this patchwork of laws of fireworks rules and regulations around Metro is that, sure, someone can call in and complain about fireworks going off, police show up, guess what? They scatter, they just take off, they run for the hills, you can't catch them, can't catch these kids in the act. So I can see how it's it's difficult to enforce. Let me play this clip here for you. So this is Delta Mayor... George Harvey, who actually called into the show yesterday. We were talking about this. And listen to how he describes where are these fireworks coming from? Because it's, it's, it's hard to buy these fireworks legally now. A lot, of, uh, a lot of it has been banned in so many municipalities. So where do these fireworks come from at this big fireworks fight? And here's what he said. Uh, the other disturbing thing is our police have picked up intel, which they're working on. And that is that there was almost like an equivalent uh, Uber Eats going on. Uh, they had a phone number where people were actually delivering fireworks and selling them out of their cars. Like Uber Eats for fireworks. So you had fireworks being delivered to the scene. Kyla, what do you think of that? 
Well, I think the people who are taking on those roles as as the Uber Eats for fireworks are assuming a huge amount of risk, especially if the police have already identified a phone number. It's not going to be long before they're going to be able to track down the people who are supplying the fireworks. And those people may be in for some pretty uh, significant consequences. Yeah. And hopefully they should be able to catch them doing that. Maybe that might be easier than catching some of these kids who are firing the fireworks off. So we'll see where the investigation goes on that. The other issue here that's come to light here this week once again are are the conflicting rules and regulations from municipality to municipality around the region, right? Like, So how does that work? Like in some... Some municipalities, fireworks are banned. Others, it's legal. If you, but in some places, you have to have a permit. Right? What's your understanding of that? Yeah. So, for example, in Vancouver, there's an outright ban on fireworks. In North Vancouver, which is just a 20-minute drive from most places in Vancouver, uh, fireworks are permissible for a, a set period every year, um, leading up to and including Halloween. Um, in Surrey, uh, fireworks are permissible for community events only. Uh, in Delta, you're required to have um, a certain licenses and um, and take a course in order to purchase fireworks. But we don't sort of guide ourselves by municipal boundaries. So it's really easy for you if you live, if you have a car or you have access to public transit, um, if you want to go from a municipality that bans fireworks to a municipality that allows them, pick up as many as you want and then bring them back to where you live and set them off and violate the law with, you know, effectively with impunity. Is it legal to transport fireworks across municipal boundaries like that? Like if you go to a municipality where you can legally buy fireworks and then you take them back to a municipality where they're banned, is that breaking the law in itself? That would be breaking the law in the municipality where they're banned. Um, There may be individual bans in municipalities that allow fireworks for transporting them outside the municipality. Um, But again, you know, enforcement of this is very difficult. It's not like police are setting up roadblocks at municipal boundaries and searching vehicles for fireworks. It's not like they're boarding transit buses and asking people to empty their backpacks, nor probably could they lawfully. Right. Yeah. I've had police officers say to me as well, like, you know, in terms of the priorities that we face right now, they've got a lot on their plates. Their police are busy rather than, you know, seeking these, seeking out fireworks. But do you think there should be, like with the patchwork of laws that we have, is that a problem? Do you think there should be, maybe the province should step in with a provincial law? A provincial law would be great. Um, It would allow certainty for everybody from different municipalities to know what the law is. It's a lot of municipalities, the bylaws are hard to locate and it's hard to identify the specific information that you're looking for unless you know exactly where to find it. So having a provincial law would make it much more accessible for people. It would make it easier to enforce and it would empower more officers to enforce the law because you could have officers from different municipalities enforcing the law anywhere um, by virtue of being peace officers, whereas otherwise you can only only have them enforce it in the municipality where they work. Right. So this gets into the debate now as well about whether fireworks should just be flat out banned, never mind in individual municipalities, but province wide, like just ban fireworks, period, in British Columbia. But then you, if you do that, then we have the enforcement problems as well. How do you enforce that? Now, the other way is to try and do this in a, in a safer fashion. So let me play another clip here for you. Alim Kanji, he is with the Canadian National Fireworks Association. And as you could probably guess, he is, he's on Team Fireworks. He is pro-fireworks. And he said, look, these bans don't work. 
We can see that in action this week that they don't work. There's a better way. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday. Have a listen. Aleem Kanji from the Canadian National Fireworks Association. Do we have that clip, Tim? Okay. We can't police and enforce our way out of this. Municipalities are stretched with their finances, and we really believe the solution is greater education. Um, The CNFA is very proud of our Be a Good Neighbor program, where we promote the safe sale and use of fireworks. Okay, what do you think of that, Kyla? Education is a better way, he says. Well, I, I think I've expressed my view on that in on your show before, that education is always um, better than enforcement, um, helping people understand how to do things responsibly and giving them a space to do it responsibly. Um, you know, creating a zone where people can go, where they can set off their fireworks, where they can have that kind of fun, but where it's also monitored so that you know that they're doing it responsibly and so that there's safety right there in case something does go wrong. Right, and he also mentioned that, you know, when it comes to fireworks, there's a cultural element to it too. I mean, it's not just it's not just juvenile delinquents out, you know, at a high school shooting off fireworks at each other. But there's Lunar New Year and there's Diwali and there fireworks are traditionally associated with these cultural holidays and events, right? So, do you, do you think that should be part of the part of the, um, the 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 argument on this that we should consider that a factor? Yes, absolutely. An outright ban on fireworks um, could have a negative impact on people who use them in cultural celebrations. But the government could carve out exceptions for cultural events. And that's similar to the the bylaw in Surrey related to fireworks, where they are permitted for community events like Diwali, like Lunar New Year. um, But they have to be done by a person who's an authorized fireworks technician. This allows education, enforcement, safety, while still respecting cultural practices. Kyla, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thanks for having me. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right. Welcome back to the show. Here's something I've often wondered, especially when I'm driving around our province, when you see like roadkill on the road, a dead animal that's been hit by a vehicle. That is always a, a sad thing to see. How often does that happen? I think the numbers may surprise you here about how often that that happens. A lot of animals are are killed in in road collisions. There is an effort to reduce it. A program called, oh, check out, you should check out the website called wildlifecollisions.ca for a lot of really good background on that. Sometimes these collisions can include uh, animals that are threatened, like mountain sheep in British Columbia. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. This never happened to me. I've never hit a, an animal with a vehicle, but I've seen other people have some near misses. I remember once traveling through British Columbia and a guy swerving to miss a deer once. I thought, whoa, that would have been that would have been really, really tough, really bad thing to happen. This is going to be dangerous, not only for animals, but for people too. Vanessa Isnardi standing by. Have a listen to this here now. You're going to hear from Ralph Brote here from Edmonton, describing how his car got he hit a moose with his car. Listen to this. 
I hit the moose, I didn't even have time to hit my taillights, and the moose hit the car, and up over the hood, went through the windshield, and flew over the back of my car. I'm very thankful to be alive. Yeah, he's he was lucky. He's lucky to be alive. That can be a dangerous situation. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Vanessa Isnardi, Program Manager, Wild Safe BC. Very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Vanessa, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I congratulate the work you're doing there, um, especially with this website, wildlifecollisions.ca. There's lots of great information on there. Like, how big of a problem is this right now? You know, how many, how many wildlife vehicle collisions happen in B.C.? Yeah, so the ICBC data shows that on average, there's about 11,000 animal-related crashes in British Columbia every year. Wow. Uh, this results in about 890 human injuries and around four fatalities per year. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot, would you say? Well, it's interesting because sometimes we get this conversation, you know, people are concerned about, you know, going on a trail, going for a hike and encountering a bear and having a negative encounter with a bear. But actually getting behind the wheel is actually one of the most dangerous activities that we do. Yeah, for sure. And which type of collisions would you say are the most are the most dangerous to, to the driver? I mean, it's got to be hitting a moose, right? Well, moose are very large animals. They can weigh up to 500 kilograms, and they're yeah. also very tall. So one thing that people didn't realize is that the uh, usually when you see a deer at night on the roadways, they look back at the car, there's a reflection in their eyes, and so you have an indication that there's an animal on the road. But with moose, they're so tall that their eyes are above our headlights. So mm. we don't get that reflection. Plus, they're also very dark. So when you're driving around at night, especially at high speed, if you hit a moose, their body is going to come up and over the hood of the car and smash right into the, the windshield, uh, potentially even knocking off the roof of the car. So it is very dangerous to uh, collide with a moose. Yeah, and would you say that nighttime when you're driving in the dark is when that hazard is at its peak? Because the guy we just heard that clip from that man in Edmonton who hit a moose, that happened at night, and there was actually dash cam footage of that. And it's like this moose comes out of nowhere, just comes out of the dark, almost like you, yeah, you almost have almost no chance to miss it. Yeah, and that's what the data shows as well, is that the peaks are going to happen for moose collisions around December, and they're going to happen anywhere between 5 p.m. and 12 at night, and they're going to peak between 5 and 7 p.m. So it's when people are commuting, heading back home, and of course, daylight hours, you know, we're about to uh, hit time change again, and so it's going to get dark quite early. Yes, yeah, for sure. Speaking to Vanessa Snardi, Wild Safe BC. Um, would you say that uh, are there particular times of year when these type of collisions are more likely to occur? Absolutely, and there is some data that shows that as well. Um, over 80% of collisions in BC are with deer, and mm. we're kind of in the peak of that season right now because it is mating season for deer uh, in many parts of the province, and uh, those male deer are very focused on mating <laughs> and not yeah. necessarily what's going on around them or the, or the road conditions or what's happening on the roads. And they're also uh, more active in our communities. They're crisscrossing habitats and, and uh, different uh, roadways. So we are kind of in peak season for uh, deer collisions right now. 
Yeah. Now, is there a, are there any precautions that drivers can take to to avoid this? What would you what would you recommend? Do you have any tips? Absolutely. So, you know, now with uh, it getting darker earlier when we're commuting home, uh, we definitely want to watch our speed. Speed gives you time to react. Um, so that's the most important thing is to, you know, maintain the, the, the speed limit, don't go over that, and use extra caution, um, especially, you know, on long stretches of roadway. We tend to uh, increase our speed when Stretches are clear, uh, there's no poor weather, and we tend to uh, hit the gas pedal a little bit more. So that can actually lead to increases in collisions with wildlife. And okay. if you do see a deer, um, usually there's not just one. There's usually more around. So you do want to slow down, and you do want to pass them cautiously because sometimes deer can behave erratically and actually bolt in front of your car. Um, if you see wildlife warning signs, those yellow diamond-shaped signs alongside the roads, that's yes. probably a hot spot for collisions. So you want to pay special attention to those areas as well and slow down and watch for wildlife. Would you say that uh, vehicle collisions, is there any evidence that it's a, a serious cause for mortality for a lot of species, especially populations of animals that are threatened or or at risk. I'm going to speak to a researcher here a little later in the show uh, who specializes in studying of mountain sheep in British Columbia, Clayton Lamb. He's, he's one of the great researchers in British Columbia on these animals. And, you know, these are majestic, iconic animals in British Columbia, the bighorn sheep. And, you know, they get hit by vehicles too, right? Which is pretty sad to think. Absolutely. So they're moving from one piece of habitat to another that they probably have always done so. And what happens is we have these roadways and that are being constructed all throughout the province. And, you know, for millennia, probably those animals have always crossed in that certain spot. But now they have to cross and there's this uh, area where people are traveling at high rates of speed. And there's a lot of great work being done in the province to, you know, mitigate for that and try to identify these hot spots in these areas and try to find ways to either lower the speed limit or create underpasses, which are very expensive, but really important in those critical spots. What doesn't get a lot of attention sometimes are small, some of the smaller animals. Like, mm -hmm. for example, I'm based out of Kamloops, and rattlesnakes are a species at risk. They're really not interested in harming people, and, and they're very rare. But a lot of them die when they're alongside roads and get squashed. And badgers are another one as well. <clears throat> as well, sorry, that are at risk. Wow, badgers. Okay, yeah, you don't think of these ones. When we think of these type of collisions, you're thinking about these bigger these bigger animals, but some of these smaller animals can, can get killed too. I mean, it, you know, as, as a way forward here, we, we just advise people to be, be cautious, be on the lookout, uh, slow down. Yeah, just be aware of, you know, become informed. Check out our websites, you know, yeah. we'll, which provides information on what animals you might be expecting to encounter in your communities, especially, you know, you get used to driving around your neighborhood. Right now, bears are yes. prolific throughout the province, and they're all very busy, almost 20 hours a day looking for food. Well, they're black and dark, and <laughs> there's a good chance that you might encounter one just driving home uh, at night in your community. So, you know, be cautious and be aware that animals are on the move right now. Vanessa, thanks for coming on, and, and, and great work you're doing there at this program, and appreciate your time today. 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. We're talking wildlife collisions on our roads and highways. We have a ton of phone calls here. Let me quickly check in with Clayton Lamb, wildlife researcher at UBC. Clayton? Hey, nice to talk to you today. It's great to have you back on here. And I know I follow you on Twitter, and I know that this is a concern for you, vehicles that hit animals, especially mountain sheep, right, like bighorn sheep. How often does that happen? Yeah, more common than we like for sure. I mean, I live here in the East Kootenays, and it's certainly a main source of mortality for a number of different sheep herds here in the Kootenays. Yeah, you got any numbers on it? Like, it's kind of tragic to think of a, a majestic, iconic animal like that getting hit by a car. Brutal. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's three main herds in the East Kootenays that have uh, major overlap with the highways, and four of those herds, so they're kind of up in Golden on the Kicking Horse Pass there. Um, by Radium Hot Springs and then down here near Fernie. And we're seeing about 10% of the population killed every single year just due to collisions. So, you know, we can wow. see 10 to 20 sheep killed every year. Wow, that's that's a lot. Is there anything you can do to stop it? Just what, encourage people to be look be a bit more observant? Yeah, I mean, obviously we can put the onus on drivers, but, you know, to date that hasn't worked, obviously. And people are not trying to hit these sheep, as we know. I mean, they're trying to get their families along the highway safely. But, you know, an animal just sort of pops out in front of you or people are going a little too fast, hoping the sheep won't jump in front of you. The sheep can just be kind of standing on the side of the highway, licking salt or just being sheep. So, you know, I think we kind of need to find some more, um, you know, lasting solutions that are probably around either, you know, keeping those sheep off the highway by, you know, keeping um, salt somewhere else where we can divert them away from the highway or something even more permanent like uh, fencing the highway and building overpasses so those sheep can get over the highway safely and motorists can keep going along the highway without having wildlife collisions. Yeah, that's, that's a big threat to that population, it sounds like. Let's squeeze a few phone calls in here while we can. Andrew on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Andrew. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I've hit five deers over my time, and, uh, and progressively it's definitely gotten worse. And uh, some things I've noticed, you know, if you're going to have to hit a deer or if the one's on the highway, make sure you stay on the road. Don't go crashing off the road. Try and point towards the butt of the deer. And then uh, what I've noticed traveling up north lately, uh, the, the moose like to come out on the highways at that twilight hours. They're getting salt off the highways. Yeah. So when you see a salt truck, keep your eyes open because the moose will be popping out looking for that. Oh, okay. You've hit five deer? Wow. Yeah, I grew up in a town called Princeton, and they're all over the highway. (laughs) Man, that's a lot. That's a lot. You're like a deer magnet. I'm sorry that that happened to you there. Um, Clayton, you mentioned the salt issue before. So, like, you know, the salt goes on the road to melt the ice, and then the animals, like, they like to, like, lick the salt, right? Yeah, exactly. Animals naturally uh, seek out minerals. I mean, folks that have cows or uh, horses, you know, we provide minerals to those animals and and wildlife naturally are looking for those minerals as well and they find them in natural licks in the backcountry at times but nothing is more concentrated than on a roadside where it's you know dumped day after day all winter yeah. so it, we're basically attracting them to the roadside yeah right Corey on the line the north van hi Corey. go ahead hey good morning uh yeah i i hit a deer <laughs> uh yeah i was it was, I think it got hit before, so it was just lying on the highway, so we didn't see the eyes kind of looking back at you. And by the time I, uh, I saw it, it was a little too late, and uh, I kind of just kind of sealed the deal, as you would say. Um, so, uh, yeah, like my, my car definitely took a, a, a decent hit, and I spent uh, 
a fair while at the uh, car wash, uh, you know, spraying down my engine block. Um, ugh, it, it was not a pleasant experience, put it that way. Yeah, no, I'm sorry that, sorry that happened to you. I mean, you know, I wouldn't want this to happen to anybody. Sue in Richmond on the open line. Hi, Sue. Yeah, hi there. Uh, several years ago, we were on the highway, dark, late at night and all. Uh, the vehicle in front of us, I hit a deer, went flying in the air. The guy kept going. It didn't bother him. Landed. We stopped, got out, and this deer was in rough shape, and it was late at night. Is there any phone number you can call so it can be humanely dealt with? That's really <clears throat> troubling. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Clayton, do you know? Yeah, I think probably the conservation officers, the um, the rap line, they call yeah. it, that would probably be the, the folks that could humanely dispatch that animal in a timely fashion. Yeah, the rap line in British Columbia, which stands for Report All Poachers and Polluters, that's a really good source, and you can easily find that, that number online, the rap line, R-A-P-P, online. is an easy number to find. Squeeze in another caller, Alex in Coquitlam. Hi, Alex, go ahead. Hi, I had the misfortune of hitting a, a moose up in Belmont in my GMC Jimmy. The important part is never swerve. I grabbed the bomb of the steering wheels and I the steering wheel and I ducked and survived. The top part of my truck didn't. And then the scariest one actually was when I was driving a highway coach down to SeaTac Airport doing seventy you know, miles per hour, I hit a seagull, and I had nowhere to duck. And I thought, that sucker's going to come through and take me out. But uh, the windshield uh, held it out, but it did shatter. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that, Alex. I mean, we had a few callers there, Clayton, say you should avoid swerving if an animal jumps in front of you. Uh, maybe that would make it even worse if you go off the road. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? on? Have you ever hit anything with your, your truck and you're driving around, Clayton? No, I, I have not. I've had a few close calls, but I you know, kind of like the callers here, we, we can ask people in the students when I do presentations on this, we ask people, how many people have hit an animal or know somebody? And, you know, a room of 100 people, every single person will put up their hand. So it's a pretty ubiquitous thing. And I, you know, I'm not above that happening to me. And I suspect it, unfortunately, will happen to me one day, too. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, kind of unavoidable to a degree in many circumstances. Mark in Nanaimo. Mark, you got like 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hey, I'm just calling in to reiterate that you shouldn't swerve when you hit it. When something runs in front of you, I've lost two friends from them swerving on animals on the highways, rolling their vehicles in the ditch. <laughs> and just stay straight, hammer on the brakes, you know, save yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for the call. Hey, Clayton, thank you for coming on. Congrats on all the great work you're doing, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right, let's tell you about an amazing treasure hunt now that was 85 years in the making. It's the story of a famous mountain climber and photographer. His name is Bradford Washburn. This man is a legend in mountaineering and alpine photography. And in 1937, he was forced to abandon his camera equipment on a Yukon glacier. Well, the camera equipment has now been found all these years later. It's an incredible story. And I've got two of the people involved standing by here to tell you this story. First, have a listen to this. This is part of a, a documentary film on Bradford Washington's life and career as an alpine photographer. It's called The Sanctity of Space. Have a listen to this. I was just looking for inspiration. I kept on circling back to the moose's tooth in Brad Washburn photos. He's the greatest aerial mountain photographer of all time. Brad's photography taught me that you could use tiny human elements 
to convey the scale of these massive landscapes. Okay, I've just, I've really enjoyed learning more about this man's career and his accomplishments and the amazing story of the search for his camera equipment. Let's speak to two of the people involved. Griffin Post on the line. Griffin is a professional skier and mountain explorer. Hi, Griffin. How are you? Thanks for having us on the program. You bet. Thanks for coming on. Also on the line is Dora Madrika from the University of Ottawa. Hi, Dora. Hi, Mike. Hi, Griffin. Thanks to both of you for doing this. Hey, Griffin, let me go to you first. First of all, tell me a little bit about Bradford Washburn. I've just been learning more about him in the last few days. I mean, this guy's a legend, right? Tell me about him. Yeah, I think those sound bites summed him up pretty well, but he is just this iconic explorer and mountaineer and is really responsible for a lot of the first photography out of the Yukon, aerial photography, I should say, out of the Yukon and Alaska and his yeah. contributions to mapping and mountaineering are still very relevant today. Yeah, he mapped Mount Everest, and he took these incredible photographs way back in the 1930s. Like Ansel Adams, the famous photographer people will be familiar with, called him the greatest aerial photographer ever. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how he lost this camera equipment. So Dora, what happened there in this, in 1937, he had to leave all this camera equipment behind on this mountain? Yeah, so uh, Brad and Bob Bates, his uh, climbing buddy, they set out to climb Mount Lucania and they flew in all their gear in advance from Alaska and they stashed it on Walsh Glacier. But then when they came back to climb the peak, they landed in really deep slush, so soft snow and the plane barely made it out um obviously there was no way that the pilot is coming back to pick them up and their only way out was uh, on foot and they had to cross over 100 kilometers to the nearest town to burwash landing so they had to abandon most of their gear all their cameras and their film included and everything all that stayed on Walsh glacier and as far as we know no one ever really went back to look for the cache since it was left there 85 years ago until wow. Griffin just got this wild idea and decided, yeah, I'm going to do it. Okay, Griffin, tell me about this now. You became obsessed with, about this. this, And we're not talking about a, a, a small camera here. And we're talking about, like, how much stuff was left up there on that glacier? Yeah, so according to their records, they left about 900 pounds of gear or so. And that's wow. one of the elements of the story that kind of made me feel like it was more realistic to locate something because if you're just looking for two cameras on this massive glacier yeah the odds are pretty low but that that amount of gear at least gives uh a lot more a lot more to look for yeah it's still a needle in a haystack but that needle is a little bit bigger yeah 900 pounds worth of stuff because the cameras that this man brought up these mountains i've just been learning like these were big cameras like he took he took incredible kind of wide-angle, high-resolution photos <laughs> way back in the 1930s, and those cameras were big, right? Yeah, and that was part of the reason they had to leave that stuff behind. His yeah. aerial camera, this F8 model, was about 18 or 20 pounds and shot big 5-by-7-inch negatives, and it just wasn't feasible for, with the change of plans for them to pack something that heavy and bulky out. Okay, so let's talk about the search for this cache of forgotten camera equipment all these years. So, Dora, how did, how did you help out here? You were looking at the glacier movements, right? Yeah, correct. So uh, Griffin sort of solved the first part of the puzzle. He established where the original location of the cache used to be, based yeah. on Washburn's old photos from 1937. 
But yeah, obviously glaciers move, so the cache today is nowhere near where it used to be. And uh, that's how I got involved. Um, Griffin contacted our research group at the University of Ottawa. So we could call, uh, help and provide an estimate of where the cache is today. Obviously, the original estimate that we had, that was determined from satellite data, which mostly only covers the last 20 years or so. And that's pretty limiting, uh, yeah. considering we're trying to reconstruct glacier movement over 85 years, right? So um, our original estimate was quite rough, let's say. And what complicates everything even more is that Walsh Glacier is actually a surging glacier. So every few decades, it just accelerates and it has those short periods, one or two years, where it speeds up dramatically. And that oh. irregular behavior, it makes it really difficult to reconstruct the long-term flow and uh, the whole history of that glacier, and especially when we only have information for 20 years. Okay. Okay, so you're trying to whittle down where this stuff could, could be now, all these years later. Griffin, tell me how you did this. How did you find these these cameras? Yeah, true. Doors team at the University of Ottawa, we had narrowed down the search area to, you know, a small, small uh, parcel of glacier. I mean, it's still pretty vast, but yeah. from there we just had kind of year zero or where we, the most likely we thought it was, and we expanded out from there searching on foot and also using drones, taking panoramic imagery to basically examine the areas that were too difficult to access or too dangerous because of crevasses or other glacial features. And really it was a matter of figuring out where it wasn't one day at a time and kind of, you know, narrowing down and just checking off the box, like, okay, it's not there. Move on to the, the next spot. Right. And ultimately it was kind of Dora's problem solving on our second to last day that really Put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Okay, tell me about the day, the moment you found it, you found this stuff. Yeah, so with literally four hours left of searching before the heli came back and picked us up, we decided, based on Dora's reasoning, to look far further down Glacier than we ever really thought it could be. And about half an hour into that search, one of the crew members found an old fuel canister and then we found some goggles and some other articles articles of clothing that were just indisputably washburns. You could just wow. recognize the gear that they had from some of the photos that we had from the expedition. Oh my goodness. And if you uh, tell me about the stuff you've recovered now. You found you found all did you find all the cameras? Yeah, so working with uh, Parks Canada and uh, continuing to work with Dora's team, we're able to return to the area and extract um, two motion picture cameras, parts of his big aerial F8 camera, and some other key artifacts, which was, you know, pretty special to be able to get that off the glacier and hopefully get them to a safe place where they can be examined and uh, treated. Wow, that's incredible. What was that like for you? What was going through your mind as you found this stuff after all these years? Really, it was just disbelief that it actually worked. Uh -huh. I mean, the odds that something survived 85 years on a glacier it hadn't fallen in a crevasse, it didn't, you know, melt into the glacier. Like, there were so many question marks, and that, like, when you're looking at it with your own eyes, it's just that feeling of, yeah, validation of, like, yeah, this idea as improbable and outlandish as it was, it, you know, we were right, and we, like, pulled together and kind of solved this puzzle.
I love it. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Is there any chance that any of the photographs, like the film, survived? I, I'd say we're cautiously optimistic. I mean, wow. the, the odds of something surviving on a glacier for 85 years are you know, pretty thin. And you know, what's to say that that good luck carries through to uh, the film and uh, yeah. hopefully some of the photographs as well. And what, what happens next? And sadly, we just got a minute left here. Um, Dora, what happens with this equipment now? Who has it now and what's going to happen to it? Right now, the equipment is in the hands of uh, Parks Canada. So they have their archaeologists and their conservation specialists looking at it and yeah, trying to find a good, space, a good place for it to go and hopefully try to recover something from, uh, from the cameras, from the film. Wow, that's an amazing story. Congratulations, guys, on your success here. Griffin, that must be a, a, a thrilling experience for you. Dora, you played a key role. Thanks a lot for sharing the story today. That's wonderful. Thank yeah, you. thanks for having us.